When you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? Throw your mind way back and I'm sure we've got a bunch of doctors and nurses and teachers and engineers and whatever, right? So we are talking about the other side of work, which is the notion of rest. But think about work. Is work a good thing, a bad thing, a necessary thing? What do you think? Because it might sound as though we are positioning work as a bad thing, and we're telling ourselves about all of the speed and frenzy and anxiety of the lives that we're living, and we attribute a lot of that to work. Um, we are notoriously, as a society, people who are consumed by working more and more and more. Um, if we were to try and bring a Sabbath back to Sunday, we'd probably say, I couldn't possibly, I could not possibly um, take a whole day and not work. When I was a pastor in, in, in Toronto, we had several students from U of T, and I was mentoring a small group of lawyers, um, law students, some of them were articling, and I challenged them to, to never study on a Sunday. And they looked at me with a look of aghast, like how are we going to get ahead if we take a day when we're out of the race? If I don't show up seven days, somebody else will show up ahead of me and will be able to, to get ahead of me. And so it's a big struggle. One young man said, I'll do it. And he actually excelled. He's now working faithfully as a great lawyer. And he did it while he was actually able to never do homework, studies, or work on, on Sunday. So that's an interesting challenge. What we're going to talk about today is the whole question of what work is. And so we're beginning on this notion that we need to be people who can stop working. But let's look at the work side of Sabbath. Let's look at the work side of rest. And we're going to take a little trip into Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to get myself in trouble for sure because I need to give you the context and so I'll be faithful to the context so that we can get to the answer to the question, what happened in the garden? So you might have a vague notion of the story of creation and the story of the Garden of Eden. But what I'm interested in for us to get to the question of what work is all about is what actually happened when we fell? What did our fallenness bring about? In what way did God judge us and change us and change our lives and change our world because of the fall? Because it was momentous, right? It was like everything stopped and pretty much everything changed. The relationship that Adam and Eve could have with God could no longer be realized. They just, they, they just couldn't do it. And when God came walking in the garden, they were hiding and he said, why were you hiding? And they said, well, um, we were naked and we were afraid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Did you do what I told you not to do? And then they began the age-old um, struggle of she said, he said, she did, he did. 
and we're in trouble ever since, right? Here's the verse that begins that little part of Genesis 3. God said to the woman, I will greatly multiply your, your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So how many of you are delighted that you came this morning to learn this kind of stuff in church, right? Um, Hebrew is a language that uses poetry many, many times. And when Hebrew uses the poetic form, it doesn't rhyme sounds like I did when I was a younger person, but it rhymes ideas. And so many times the way that we can understand what a Hebrew passage is all about is to see two lines that are a rhyme, one of the other, and how they rhyme. Now in this verse, there is what is called a chiastic parallelism. Chias, Kia is a Greek word for X, and a chiastic parallelism is one where the two lines rhyme like an X. So I'm going to show you that. I'll just put the X's in place for you and show you where the parts of the rhyme come about. God said, never mind the fact that bearing children is going to be full of pain for you. Um, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That's a pair of lines that is packed, not only with meaning, but with controversy, right? So let me, let me just get some things clear here. Your desire is not the notion of a wife pining over her husband. Sorry, guys. She is not going to live her life in rapt um, attention, uh, running to get your slippers as soon as you want them, and bring the evening paper. Believe me, I have met those men. They sometimes are pastors. They once was a pastor I worked for, and it was a scary thing to see. But the second part of the little parallelism is even more troubling, perhaps, because it says, and he will rule over you. What God says is going to happen because of our brokenness is that the way we relate to each other, to one another, particularly along the lines of gender, will be fundamentally broken, fundamentally flawed. And what it will look like is that there will be a struggle between the husband and the wife, per se, um, that is going to be an ongoing struggle that will need to be addressed. And the kind of struggle that is being indicated here is the struggle over dominance, the struggle over who's in charge, the struggle of who is the one who gets to say what's going to be and who's the one who's not going to be able to be that person. And so in any broken family, because we are all broken people who live in broken families in our fallenness, there will be a struggle about who's in charge. And if you don't know that that's true, if you didn't experience it in the car on the way to church, you might experience it on the way home from church when you begin to use this as ammunition for each other, right? A, a way that we can see it played out um, in, a, in a fairer kind of a, a context is in the very next chapter where the very same parallelism 
the very same vocabulary is used, even though it gets translated a little differently. The very same terms are used. When God is talking to Cain, and Cain is resisting him, and God says, why are you resisting? Sin is going to be after you, and you're going to have to struggle against sin. And so just like he says in Genesis 3, verse 16, God says that there's going to be the same kind of a struggle over mastery that's between every human being and the Satan serpent who has come to disrupt and to break our fellowship with God. So he says, it's like sin is actually crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. The same verb, um, or the same noun, um, that God says is going to be the way Eve is wanting to relate to Adam. But then he says, but you must master it. The same way that he has said that Adam would lord it over Eve um, would be a, a consequence of the fall. Understand that the fact that we are gendered beings, male and female, identifies the fact that we have different roles and different needs and different orientations. And those particular orientations are going to get messed up, stuffed up by our being broken, by our being fallen. And so, and this is where I get myself in trouble, if it's true to say that women are essentially relationally oriented and men are essentially task oriented, we begin to see how this stuff begins to work out in our relationships. Now, what does that have to do with working or not working and so on? Well, God is not finished. And after he has said to Eve what she's going to struggle about, and we can observe that it is true. Um, it is natural and proper for women to give children, to give childbirth. Um, it is not natural and proper that it be painful. And so before the fall, apparently the woman could give birth, but it would not be a painful ordeal. Now, there's something that redeems all of it wonderfully. And the New Testament talks about the fact that when the child is born, you forget the former pain. But I'm not going to give any kind of advice about how to relate. The only thing I know is that if you ever want to experience your wife's um, great disdain, it'll be during her childbirth. Anything you say, anything you say will get you in trouble. Anything you do will get you in trouble. Just sit there <laughs> and wait. Now let's, for, let's move on. You want me to, right? Here's what God says to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. So see the, the areas in which he is expressing the result of our rebellion. And it's in the relational context that he speaks to the woman, her ability to bear children. But it's, it's in the, the domain or the area of labor or of tasks that he speaks to the man. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles that will grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken for your dust, and to dust you shall return. In the area in which the man exercises his uniqueness, God says that working 
will no longer be easily fruitful. Working will be full of frustration. Working will be difficult. And so in the area of farming, it must have been before the fall that you would simply drop a seed into the ground and the ground, the ground would yield a lovely plant that grows from that seed and there would be nothing around that seed except the, the beauty of the plant um, that it provided. But God says now there are going to be thorns and thistles everywhere you turn. So roses apparently are not a blessing of God. Or at least the thorn part of the roses isn't. I'm not sure. But whereas Adam could have meaningful and fruitful, productive work, he no longer could expect that. It was going to be hard for him to do the jobs that he had um, given responsibility for. Now, when we think about that whole realm, um, we begin to understand that the provisions that God made for us within creation had to do with our unique places and roles and interrelationships. So the unique things that God had to do through women might well be proposed to be in the relational context. The jobs that God had for man may be related to the tasks and um, the jobs that God had for man. And when we go back to the very beginning, um, and we, we try to catch ourselves up to the, the Sabbath notion and why we have to stop working, it's in the context of our working as a normal rhythm of creation. That it is normal to creation that we do work as humankind. So what God is saying to Israel through Adam and Eve and then all the way through his covenant people, God says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Is that a negative statement or a positive statement? It's actually a positive statement, isn't it? God's not saying, I don't like work. I don't like the fact that work takes over your lives. What God does want to say to us is that the work that is properly part of our lives needs to stop. And there needs to be rest. There needs to be abiding. There needs to be Sabbathing if that work is going to be as good as it could possibly be. And it's already compromised because of our sinfulness. Our work is going to be meaningless oftentimes because we are fallen beings. And because we don't understand the proper context of our work, the proper purpose of our work, and so we may end up in thankless jobs in our estimation doing things that we think are tiresome and wearisome and crashing towards the Sabbath that we might reluctantly uh, undertake. A little bit farther in the, the Old Testament again, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What is our job as humankind? Our job as humankind is to look after our home. God has given us a wonderful home, but he has also told us that we are responsible to be the custodians of that home. We are to take care of the world in which God has placed us. And we're confused sometimes because when we look at creation around us, we are filled with an ambivalence, a proper ambivalence perhaps, by which we notice that there is still su such beauty in creation. The aurora borealis the other night, 
my goodness, staggeringly beautiful. And yet there's also the fact that all around us are the thorns and thistles and the frustrations of the world that is also now fallen with us. In the New Testament, we get teaching from Paul who says, we're not the only ones who groan about this. We're not the only ones who have um, temporal difficulties and struggles through our lives. Creation also groans with us. So there's a groaning from our creation that says we hope for something much, much more beautiful than what we're experiencing. So we, as God's humankind, are given custody of the home in which we are placed. We need to be environmentalists in the very best sense of that word. We need to take care of our home. Uh, We should not be the ones who are responsible for the continued brokenness and breaking of the home that God has placed us in. So we can't just say, don't worry, God is going to throw this away and get us out of here. That's often the way we used to think, whether we said that or not. Um, why should we care about the environment? We should, why should we care about recycling? Um, all of this is, is going to be destroyed anyway. Well, no, that's not so. Creation is actually groaning with us. When we experience the fallenness of our lives, creation experiences that as well. Creation groans and longs for a day when God will recreate in all of its splendor and glory the original creation that we were actually responsible for breaking. Um, We are culpable in all of that. So it is our job to work. It is our place to work. We are not, once we come to be followers of Christ, we're not people who get to sit around having Bible studies and coffee um, and just wonder about things. We have a job to do. We all have jobs to do. And work is a good undertaking in its proper context with its proper rhythm. Interestingly, when we go into the uh, part of the New Testament where we get some very practical ideas, um, Paul talks to a church, and he basically says, a bunch of you are lazy bums. Like, a bunch of you aren't willing to do the work that you should properly do. He says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he shouldn't eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. If a man won't work, he shouldn't eat. There is a good rule of thumb. Some of us can't work for one reason or another, but for the norm, working is the proper rhythm of living a human life and in the community of other followers of Christ. Um, Those who refuse to work um, shouldn't eat, plain as that. But there's also something about the fact that the kind of work we can do is, is now redeemed. So in a passage that's, that's about whether we get to work for our salvation or we get to work to impress God, um, Paul says you can't do that. And in fact, he turns it all the way around and he really um, sort of echoes what we said that we need to work from rest not rest from work. He says this, 
we are God's handiwork, right? We are God's work. He has done some work. That's us. And we have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You think that's only on Sundays? I think not. That our, our whole lives should be characterized as doing works that are the kinds of works that God decided we should do. Are they always sacred jobs? No. They are secular jobs. They are ordinary jobs. They are world-keeping, tidying, fixing jobs. They are relational jobs that have to do with caring for one another and about one another. They are about the things that need to be done on our street. They are the things that God actually is pleased to see his children do. And might also say to us, actually, I was thinking of you when I knew that the town of Milton would need this particular person in a role. I thought of you. And I thought how good it would be if one of my children was the one that took that role. Because what God has to do in us and through us by our work can be something that is way beyond the frustration of meaningless work that we sometimes find ourselves settling into. So how do we, how do we bring all of that to a, a practical kind of a commitment? I want to talk about, this is a silly word, the work rest symbiosis. Somebody tell me what symbiosis means. I didn't think so. Somebody does. What is a symbiotic relationship? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Both partners, both entities, benefit mutually from existing together. There is a work-rest symbiosis that can only be discovered as we find ourselves as part of the new creation in Christ. And as we find a new understanding of Sabbath, that is of rest, we also need to have it partnered with a new paradigm of work. So we can't just say, yeah, work sucks. And we can't say, I hate my job. We can, but it's not all that helpful. Um, but I'm really going to enjoy rest. The point here is that the best rest is also accompanied by the best work. The best kind of work is the kind of work that needs and benefits from and actually augments our rest. We do the things that we believe we are called to do humanly and as followers of Christ, and we balance them off against the wonder of rest by which we stop doing whatever they are for a Sabbath. That's the perfect balance of living a redeemed Christian life. Um, people who are given custody of our home and our community, and people who know that to do the best work we can do, rest needs to be a big part of the package. So how does that look? Um, I think it looks at the understanding that we can actually do meaningful work. And, and there's a bit of a, a puzzle is to say, how, how do we understand work that is meaningful versus work that is meaningless? Um, many people, I think, would say that their work is meaningless. 
Uh, I've, I've had people come and say to me, how can you tell me that my work is meaningful? It is not meaningful to me at all. And when I begin to press in a little bit and say, could your work be meaningful? Um, one guy came and said, I have one for you. I'm in charge of customer complaints. I hate my job. I spend my life taking people's anger, trying to mitigate against the problem that they have, and at the end of the day, I feel exhausted, I feel worn down, and I feel like I've not done anything in the world for anybody's good. What would you say to that person? Maybe God knew that that person should be in that job because the angry customer that finally gets through after being on hold for 47 minutes will, will vent and rant. But if that person encounters a person of grace, wouldn't that be different? Well, that, that's just, you know, playing head games. It's not. It's saying there is, there is a way for all of us to understand that the work that we do is meaningful work. Now, there are certain kinds of work we're not allowed to do. You're not allowed to be a criminal, right? So don't go wondering with God, how can I make the best of this bank robbery? I'll be nice to the tellers when I rob them. Is that good? No. Um, I, I was on a plane once, and we got to that guy question. Um, the person beside me said, what do you do for a living? So I said, oh, I'm a pastor. He said, oh. That's often the, the response I get. But he said, I guess I'm the opposite then. What? Like, is there a demon in the Cyprus? I don't know what this is. He says, yeah, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> now, he was in the middle of some ugly thing that he wasn't very proud of, so he told me all about that. Um, so there are certain jobs that we should not do. We should not um, be unethical. We should not be immoral. We should not be illegal. So we clear that off the table. Apart from that, there is no job that cannot be meaningful work for the follower of Christ. Think of any job that there is. All of the frustrations that come with those jobs against the background of the fact that we were created to be workers, against that background that we are given into this world to take care of it and all of its systems. All of the things that we need to do together, as we do them properly rested, as we do them with a proper understanding of the way that our values um, can be introduced to our jobs and the people around us doing our jobs and benefit from benefiting from our jobs, we actually end up being able to say, work is meaningful to me. I am delighted to be a pastor. Honestly, there have been times when I've looked at in the mirror and thought, how do I get to do this? I mean, studying scripture, being with people, the various things that we do, and you sort of go, well, this is good. I mean, it's not hard to find that this is meaningful work. Oh, if I get my head turned on this, it can turn into something not meaningful, and that's where I need to be sure that my values and my commitments are those that they properly should be. But the, the symbiosis between these two, between meaningful work, is the fact that we have meaningful work and Sabbath rest. So we're serious about going hard on Sabbath and trying to figure out what it looks like. Is Sunday your Sabbath? Cool. 
let's figure out ways for it to actually um, feed into your soul so that when you go from that rest into work, you go with the proper orientation. What if enough happens in your gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ on a Sunday that you get fueled up and can't wait to go back to work on Monday, and you've already thought of ways that you can be the difference in the people's lives, because it, it's the people factor that makes all the difference, right? Meaningful work inevitably is about the people with whom and for whom and who work for us, the communities in which we, are, we do our work. So this symbiosis that we're looking for is new on both sides. It's new because it's a new understanding of work that is a meaningful kind of work, and it's a new kind of a rest that is not a crashing to rest, but it's actually deliberately stopping first, and then out of the rest and out of the refreshment that comes in our Sabbath, we go back to work and say, I can't wait to be, to be here. How many people where you work show up on a Monday morning and say, thank God it's Monday? Not many, right? There are a few people. But how many people say, thank God it's Friday? And it's like, that's wrong. That's a, a whole messed up paradigm that says if we really have to sp spend most of our lives hating what we're doing, and how many people don't? If we have to show up for most of our lives and say, I don't really want to be here, but I can't wait till the weekend gets here so that I can enjoy at least what I've been able to earn um, in this rat race of, of work, of, of employment. Let me put one idea out to you that I've, I've suggested many times that would help us to make sure that we have the right paradigm, the right symbiosis between work and, and rest. Suppose you always answered the question, the guy question, what is it that you do, with the adjective Christian. So I've played this out in many places with many people and with, with, with actual success in what happens in the marketplace. There's a friend of mine who's a doctor, and he decided many years ago, decades ago, that he would only always introduce himself as a Christian doctor. And it almost always occasioned the question, why do you call yourself a Christian doctor? And he would say, first of all, because it reminds me of what that means. And secondly, I hope it promises you that there's going to be a difference in the way I practice my medicine. I'm a Christian doctor. What does that mean? I'm a Christian businessman. What does that mean? The implication of that ought to be you can be counted on to be fair, to be honest, never to trick people. It ought to mean that. I'm a Christian lawyer, and some of my lawyer friends have said, you can't ever be that. Yes, you can. You can be a Christian defense lawyer defending the worst criminals, but you can still do it as a Christian in a way that makes an impact for the kingdom, in a way that makes an impact into people's lives. Whatever you are, say, I am a Christian, whatever it is. I'm a Christian caregiver. I'm a Christian nurse. I'm a Christian teacher. I'm a Christian accountant. I'm a Christian business person. And it means something every time you identify yourself that way. It's about as dangerous as putting a bumper sticker, like honk if you love Jesus, on your 
on your card. I, I wouldn't do it. But you should be willing to say, I am a Christian accountant, teller. I'm a Christian uh, auto worker. Um, it ought to mean something. And w- when people identify folks that they know um, who are Christians and, and hang the shingle out there, when they say to me, he is a Christian through and through, and I have come across many Christian people, some in this church, where people have said about them, if John gives his word, you can count on it. We talk in Ireland about people who have a good name. What does it mean to have a good name? It means that when your name is mentioned, people say, that's a person of integrity. That's a person who is honest. That's a person who is diligent. It's not a person that you would call a lazy person or a tricker or a deceiver. It, 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 it's the real thing. And that's what we need to be calling on ourselves to, to live into. Is work good or bad or necessary? It's sometimes just necessary, but it can be good. It can be meaningful as we attach the adjective Christian and understand what that means. Understand what that means for now. Understand what that means for the future. Understand that the payoff for living out a Christian life is not that I will feel good. It's for the betterment of the people around me. People should be better because they have encountered my work um, than they were before they encountered it. And I challenge you, as as you go back to work tomorrow, think of that. Um, Whether you say it or not, put the Christian adjective there and ask, what difference will that make? And, And how will I make that difference? Did you ever come across somebody, and in your heart of hearts, you wonder if they're a Christian because of the way they treat you? And you hope they are, right? And when you find out they are, it is such a delight that you have discovered that someone really believes in the transformation of life in every realm, including work, um, that is bearing fruit. I don't know how many of you have come across the the lovely uh, children's writer, so to speak. Um, He won... um, an Oscar, Charlie Mackesy is his name, and oh, here's the picture. Charlie Mackesy is a children's writer, speaker, and now he won an Oscar for a short um, animation. Uh, Dean introduced us to him a few years ago, and the book that he wrote is a book called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. It's the most delightful of Christian books. It is full of simple, beautiful um, maxims and truisms. And one of the ones that grabs my attention many times is the one where um, the question is asked, um, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the boy said, kind. What do you want to be when you grow up? What did you want to be when you grow up? best answer is kind. Are you going to be an accountant? Are you going to be a teacher? Are you going to be a janitor? Um, are, you, are you going to be, what is it? The more important question is, do you, do you want to be kind? Would you love for people to say, 
yeah, I met this person who um, basically checked me out at the at the grocery store, and she was just so kind. I, I met this person at the bank, and he was just so kind. I met this person at the emergency room, and she was just so kind. Believe me, it doesn't matter that they have identified what your particular task is. Um, they have identified the thing that is, is, is the magic of who you are as a person who follows Jesus, who is experiencing the symbiosis of work and rest. This is why rest matters. This is why Sabbath matters. Because at the best of times, all of us who are tired out let down a little bit on those graces of our Christian followership. And so we need to keep it sharp and keep it ready. What do you want to be when you grow up? Kind. See, Dean told us about that book. We got it for all of our grandchildren. And we actually had a little chat and said, do you think the guy's a Christian? And so we went on a little search. And he is. He is particularly involved at Holy Trinity Brompton, the Alpha Movement right now in London. He's an engaging um, apologist in a really unassuming way. But this book that speaks about Christian values, this work of his produced by a follower of Christ is a work that is uh, such that any Christian would be proud to say, I am a Christian children's writer because it oozes through the pages of his work. It will ooze through your work as you become more and more delighted in Christ and discover that delight in your Sabbathing. What do you want to be when you grow up? Kind. What do you want to be this week? How about we just say, let's be kind. Tomorrow, what do you want to be like when you get to work? Harried? Frustrated? Annoyed? Kind. What difference will the frustration make ultimately? But how about kindness? How about if somebody encounters you and your kindness at the pivotal point of their lives where you didn't know what was going on behind the scenes, but God does, and God by his spirit is saying, I I wish there's somebody who has the kindness of Christ that I could just bring into that office today. What do you want to be when you grow up? Kind, right? That's the right answer.